When all seemed safe, some of the bolder folk came right up the hill and shook hands with Farmer Giles. A few, the parson and the blacksmith and the miller and one or two other persons of importance, slapped him on the back. That did not please him. His shoulder was very sore. But he felt obliged to invite them into his house. They sat round in the kitchen, drinking his health and loudly praising him. He made no effort to hide his yawns, but as long as the drink lasted, they took no notice. By the time they had all had one or two, and the farmer two or three, he began to feel quite bold. And when they had all had two or three, and he himself five or six, he felt as bold as his dog thought him. They parted good friends, and he slapped their backs heartily. His hands were large, red, and thick so he had his revenge. Next day he found that the news had grown in the tally, and he had become an important local figure. By the middle of the next week, the news had spread to all the villages within 20 miles. He had become a hero of the countryside. Very pleasant, he found it. Next market day, he got enough free drink to float a boat. That is to say, he nearly had his fill, and came home singing old heroic songs. <coughs> At last, even the king got to hear of it. The capital of that realm, the middle kingdom of the island in those happy days, was some twenty leagues distant from Ham, and they paid little heed at court, as a rule, to the doings of rustics in the provinces. But so prompt an expulsion of a giant so injurious seemed worthy of note and of some little courtesy. So in due course, that is, in about three months, and on the feast of St. Michael, the king sent a magnificent letter. It was written in red upon white parchment and expressed the royal approbation of our loyal subject and well-beloved Egidius Abinobarbus Julius Agricola de Hamo. The letter was signed with a red blot, but the court scribe had added Ego Augustus Bonificatius Ambrosius Aurelius Antonius Pius et Magnificus Der Rer Tyrannus et Basilius Mediterraneum Partium Subscribo. And a large red seal was attached. So the document was plainly genuine. It afforded great pleasure to Giles, and was much admired, especially when it was discovered that one could get a seat and drink by the farmer's fire by asking to look at it. Better than the testimonial was the accompanying gift. The king sent a belt and a long sword. To tell the truth, the king had never used the sword himself. It belonged to the family and had been hanging in his armory time out of mind. The armorer could not say how it came there, or what might be the use of it. Plain, heavy swords of that kind were out of fashion at court just then, so the king thought it was the very thing for a present to a rustic. But Farmer Giles was delighted, and his local reputation became enormous. Giles much enjoyed the turn of events. So did his dog. 
he never got his promised whipping. Giles was a just man according to his lights. In his heart, he gave a fair share of the credit to Garm, though he never went so far as to mention it. He continued to throw hard words and hard things at the dog when he felt inclined, but he winked at many little outings. Garm took to walking far afield. The farmer went about with a high step, and luck smiled on him. The autumn and early winter work went well. All seemed set fair, until the dragon came. In those days, dragons were already getting scarce in the island. None had seen had been seen in the Midland realm of Augustus Bonifacius for many a year. There were, of course, the dubious marches and the uninhabited mountains westward and northward, but they were a long way off. In those parts, once upon a time, there had dwelt a number of dragons of one kind and another, and they had made raids far and wide. But the Middle Kingdom was in those days famous for the daring of the king's knights and so many stray dragons had been killed or had returned with grave damage that the others gave up going that way. It was still the custom for Dragon's Tail to be served up at the king's Christmas feast, and each year a knight was chosen for the duty of hunting. He was supposed to set out upon St. Nicholas's Day and come home with a dragon's tail not later than the eve of the feast. But for many years now, the royal cook had made a marvelous confection, a mock dragon's tail of cake and almond paste with cunning scales of hard icing sugar. The chosen knight then carried this into the hall on Christmas Eve while the fiddles played and the trumpets rang. The mock dragon's tail was eaten after dinner on Christmas Day, and everybody said to please the cook that it tasted much better than real tail. That was the situation when a real dragon turned up again. The giant was largely to blame. After his adventure, he used to go about in the mountains visiting his scattered relations more than had been his custom, and much more than they liked. For he was always trying to borrow a large copper pot. But whether he got the loan of one or not, he would sit and talk in his long-winded, lumbering fashion about the excellent country down away east and all the wonders of the wide world. He had got it into his head that he was a great and daring traveler. A nice land, he would say, pretty flat, soft to the feet, and plenty to eat for the taking. Cows, you know, and sheep all over the place, easy to spot if you look carefully. But what about the people, said they? I never saw any, said he. There was not a night to be seen or heard, my dear fellows. Nothing worse than a few stinging flies by the river. Why don't you go back and stay there, they said. Oh, well, there's no place like home, they say, said he. But maybe I shall go back one day when I have a mind. And anyway, I went there once, which is more than most folk can say. Now, about that copper pot. And these rich lands, they would hurriedly ask. These delectable regions, full of undefended cattle. Which way do they lie, and how far off? Oh, he would answer, away east or southeast. But it's a long journey. And then he would give such an exaggerated account of the distance. 
that he had walked and the woods, hills, and plains that he had crossed, that none of the other less long-legged giants ever set out. Still, the talk got about. Then the warm summer was followed by a hard winter. It was bitter cold in the mountains, and food was scarce. The talk got louder. Lowland sheep and kine from the deep pastures were much discussed. The dragons picked up their ears. They were hungry, and these rumors were attractive. So, knights are mythical, said the younger and less experienced dragons. We always thought so. At least they may be getting rare, thought the older and wiser worms. Far and fewer, and no longer to be feared. There was one dragon who was deeply moved. Chrysophylax Dives was his name, for he was of ancient and imperial lineage and very rich. He was cunning, inquisitive, greedy, well-armored, but not overbold. But at any rate, he was not the least afraid of flies or insects or of any sort of size, and he was mortally hungry. So one winter's day, about a week before Christmas, Chrysophylax spread his wings and took off. He landed quietly in the middle of the night, plump in the heart of the Midland realm of Augustus Bonifacius Rex et Basilesis. He did a good deal of damage in a short while, smashing and burning and devouring sheep, cattle, and horses. This was, in a part of the land, a long way from Ham. But Garm got the fright of his life. He had gone off on a long expedition, and taking advantage of his master's favor, he had ventured to spend a night or two away from home. He was following an engaging scent along the eaves of the wood when he turned a corner and came suddenly upon a new and alarming smell. He ran indeed slap into the tail of Chrysophylax Divis, who had just landed. Never did a dog turn his own tail round and bolt home swifter than Garm. The dragon, hearing his yelp, turned and snorted, but Garm was already far out of range. He ran all the rest of the night and arrived home about breakfast time. Help! 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 He cried outside the back door. Giles heard and did not like the sound of it. It reminded him that unexpected things may happen when all seems to be going well. Wife, let that dreaded dog in, he said, and take a stick to him. Garm came bundling into the kitchen with his eyes starting and his tongue hanging out. Help, he cried. Now, what have you been doing this time, said Giles, throwing a sausage at him. Nothing, panted Garm, too flustered to give heed to the sausage. Well, stop doing it or I'll skin you, said the farmer. I've done no wrong. I didn't mean no harm, said the dog, but I came on a dragon, accidental-like, and it frightened me. The farmer choked on his beard. Dragon, said, drat you for a good-for-nothing nosy parker. What do you want to go and find a dragon for at this time of year? And me with my hands full. Where was it? Oh, north over the hills and far away beyond the standing stones and all, said the dog. Oh, away there, said Giles, mighty relieved. 
They're queer folk in those parts, I heard tell, and aught might happen in their land. Let them get on with it. Don't come worrying me with such tales. Get out. Garm got out and spread the news all over the village. He did not forget to mention that his master was not scared in the least. Quite cool he was, and he went on with his breakfast. People chatted about it pleasantly at their doors. How like old times, they said. Just as Christmas is coming too, so seasonable. How pleased the king will be. He'll be able to have his real tale this Christmas. But more news came the next day. The dragon, it appeared, was exceptionally large and ferocious. He was doing terrible danger, terrible damage. What about the king's knights, people began to say. Others had already asked the same question. Indeed, messengers were now reaching the king from the villages most afflicted by Chrysophylax. And they said to him as loudly and as often as they dared, Lord, what of your knights? But the knights did nothing. Their knowledge of the dragon was still quite unofficial. So the king brought the matter to their notice, fully and formally, asking for necessary action at their earliest convenience. He was greatly displeased when he found that their convenience would not be early at all, and was indeed daily postponed. Yet the excuses of the knights were undoubtedly sound. First of all, the royal cook had already made the dragon's tail for that Christmas, being a man who believed in getting things done in good time. It would not do at all to offend him by bringing in a real tail at the last minute. He was a very valuable servant. Never mind the tail. Cut his head off and put an end to him, cried the messengers from the village, most nearly afflicted. But Christmas had arrived, and most unfortunately a grand tournament had been arranged for St. John's Day. Knights of many realms had been invited and were coming to compete for a valuable prize. It was obviously unreasonable to spoil the chances of the Midland Knights by sending their best men off in a dragon hunt before the tournament was over. After that came the New Year holiday. But each night the dragon moved, and each move brought him nearer to Ham. On the night of New Year's Day, people could see a blaze in the distance. The dragon had settled in a wood about five, about ten miles away, and it was burning merrily. He was a hot dragon when he felt in the mood. After that, people began to look at Farmer Giles and whisper behind his back. It made him very uncomfortable, but he pretended not to notice it. The next day, the dragon came several miles nearer. Then Farmer Giles himself began to talk loudly of the scandal of the king's knights. I should like to know what they do to earn their keep, said he. So should we, said everyone in Ham. But the miller added, Some men get knighthood by sheer merit, I am told. After all, our good Agidius here is already a knight in a manner of speaking. Did not the king send him a red letter and a sword? There's more to knighthood than a sword, said Giles. There's dubbing and all that, or so I understand. Anyway, I have my own business to attend to. Oh, but the king would do the dubbing. I don't doubt if he were asked, said the miller. Let us ask him before it is too late. Nay, said Giles. Dubbing is not for my sort. I am a farmer and proud of it. 
a plain, honest man. And honest men fare ill at court, they say. It is more in your line, Master Miller. The parson smiled, not at the farmer's retort. For Giles and the Miller were always giving one another as good as they got, being bosom enemies, as the saying was in Ham. The parson had suddenly been struck with a notion that pleased him, and he said no more at that time. The miller was not so pleased, and he scowled. Plain, certainly, and honest, perhaps, said he. But do you have to go to court and be a knight before you kill a dragon? Courage is all that is needed, as only yesterday I heard Master Egidius declare. Surely he has as much courage as any knight. All the folk standing by shouted, Of course not, and yes, indeed. Three cheers for the hero of Ham. Then Farmer Giles went home feeling very uncomfortable. He was finding that a local reputation may require keeping up, and that may prove awkward. He kicked the dog and hid the sword in a cupboard in the kitchen. Up until then, it had hung over the fireplace. The next day, the dragon moved to the neighboring village of Quercetum, Oakley in the vulgar tongue. He ate not only sheep and cows and one or two persons of tender age, but he ate a par the parson too. Rather rashly, the parson had sought to dissuade him from his evil ways. Then there was a terrible commotion. All the people of Ham came up the hill headed by their own parson, and they waited on Farmer Giles. We look to you, they said and they remained standing round and looking until the farmer's face was redder than his beard. When are you going to start, they asked. Well, I can't start today, and that's a fact, said he. I have a lot on my hands, with my cowmen sick and all. I'll see about it. They went away, but in the evening it was rumored that the dragon had moved even nearer, so they all came back. We look to you, Master Egidius, they said. Well, said he, it's very awkward for me right just now. My mare has gone lame, and the lambing has started. I'll see about it as soon as may be. So they went away once more, not without some grumbling and whispering. The miller was not sniggering, or the miller was sniggering. The parson stayed behind and could not be got rid of. He invited himself to supper and made some pointed remarks. He even asked to see what had become of the sword and insisted on seeing it. It was lying in the cupboard on a shelf hardly long enough for it. And as soon as Farmer Giles brought it out, in a flash it leapt from the sheath, which the farmer dropped as if it had been hot. The parson sprang to his feet, upsetting his beer. He picked the sword up carefully and tried to put it back in the sheath, but it would not go so much as a foot in, and it jumped clean out again as soon as he took his hands off the hilt. Dear me, this is very peculiar, said the parson. And he took a good look at both scabbard and blade. He was a lettered man, but the farmer could only spell out large unseals with difficulty, and was none too sure of the reading, even of his own name. That is why he had never given any heed to the strange letters that could be dimly seen on sheath and sword. As for the king's armor, he was so accustomed to runes, names, and other signs of power and significance upon swords and scabbards that he had not bothered his head about them. He thought them out of date, anyway. But the parson looked long. He frowned. He had expected to find some lettering on the sword or on the scabbard, 
and that was indeed the idea that had come to him the day before. But now he was surprised at what he saw, for the signs and letters there were to be sure. He could not make heads or tails of them. There's an inscription on this sheet, and some uh, epigraphical signs are visible also upon the sword, he said. Indeed, said Giles. And what may that amount to? The characters are archaic, and the language barbaric, said the parson, in gain time. To gain time, a little closer inspection will be required. He begged the loan of the sword for the night, and the farmer let him have it with pleasure. When the parson got home, he took down many learned books from his shelves, and he sat up far into the night. The next morning it was discovered that the dragon had moved nearer still. All the people of Ham barred their windows, or barred their doors, and shuttered their windows. And those that had cellars went down into them and sat shivering in the candlelight. But the parson stole out and went from door to door, and he told to all who would listen through a crack or keyhole what he had discovered in his study. Our good Agidius, he said, by the king's grace, is now the owner of Cow de Mordax, the famous sword that in popular romances is more vulgarly called Tailbiter. Those that heard his name usually opened the door. They all knew the renown of Tailbiter, for that sword had belonged to Bellamarius, the greatest of all the dragon slayers of the realm. Some accounts made him the maternal great-great-grandfather of the king. The songs and tales of his deeds were many, and if forgotten at court, were still remembered in the villages. The sword, said the parson, will not stay sheathed if a dragon is within five miles, and without doubt, in a brave man's hand, no dragon can resist it. Then people began to take heart again, and some unshuttered the windows and put their heads out. In the end, the parson persuaded a few to come and join him, but only the miller was really willing. To see Giles in a real fix seemed to him worth the risk. They went up the hill, not without anxious looks north across the river. There was no sign of the dragon. Probably he was asleep. He had been feeding very well all the Christmas time. The parson and the miller hammered on the farmer's door. There was no answer, so they hammered louder. At last, Giles came out. His face was very red. He also had sat up far into the night, drinking a good deal of ale, and he had begun again as soon as he got up. They all crowded round him, calling him Good Agidius, Bold Ahenobarbus, Great Julius, Staunch Agricola, Pride of Ham, Hero of the Countryside. And they spoke of Cow de Mordax, Tailbiter, the sword that would not be sheathed, Death or Victory, the glory of yeomanry, Backbone of the country, and the good of one's fellow men, until the farmer's head was hopelessly confused. Now then, one at a time, he said, when he got a chance. What's all this? What's all this? It's my busy morning, you know. So they let the parson explain the situation. Then the miller had the pleasure of seeing the farmer in as tight a fix as he could wish. But things did not turn out quite as the miller expected. For one thing, Giles had drunk a deal of strong ale. For another, he had a queer feeling of pride and encouragement when he learned that his sword was actually a tailbiter. 
He had been very fond of tales about Bellomarius when he was a boy, and before he had learned sense, he had sometimes wished that he could have a marvelous and heroic sword of his own. So it came over him all of a sudden that he would take Tailbiter and go dragon hunting. But he had been used to bargaining all his life, and he made one more effort to postpone the event. What, he said, me go dragon hunting in my old leggings and waistcoat? Dragon fights need some kind of armor, from all I've heard to tell. There isn't any armor in this house, and that's a fact, said he. There was a bit awkward. They all allowed, but they sent for the blacksmith. The blacksmith shook his head. He was a slow and gloomy man, vulgarly known as Sunny Sam, though his proper name was Fabricius Cuncathor. He never whistled at his work unless some disaster, such as frost in May, had duly occurred after he had foretold it. Since he was daily foretelling disasters of every kind, few happened that he had not foretold, and he was able to take credit of them. That was his chief pleasure. So naturally he was reluctant to do anything to avert them. He shook his head again. I can't make armor out of naught, he said. And it's not in my line. You'd best get a carpenter to make you a wooden shield. Not that it'll help you much. He's a hot dragon. Their faces fell. But the miller was not so easy to be turned from his plan of sending Giles to the dragon, if he would go, or of blowing the bubble of his local reputation, if he refused in the end. What about ring mail, he said. That would be a help, and it would not be very fine. It would be for business, and not showing off at court. What about your old leather jerkin, friend Egidius? And there's a great pile of links and rings around the smithy. I don't suppose Master Fabricius himself knows what may be lying there. You don't know what you're talking about, said the smith, growing cheerful. If it's real ring mail you mean, then you can't have it. It needs the skill of dwarves, and every little ring fitting into four others and all. Even if I had the craft, I should be working for weeks, and we shall be in our graves before then, he said, or leastways in the dragon. They all wrung their hands in dismay, and the blacksmith began to smile. But they were now so alarmed that they were unwilling to give up the miller's plan, and they turned to him for counsel. Well, said he, I've heard tell that in the old days those that could not buy bright hauberks out of the Southlands would stitch the steel rings on a leather shirt and be content with that. Let's see what can be done in that line. So Giles had to bring his old jerkin, and the smith was hurried back to his smithy. There they rummaged in every corner and turned over the pile of old metal, as had not been done for many a year. At the bottom they found, all dull with rust, a whole heap of small rings, fallen from some forgotten coat, such as the miller had spoken of. Sam, more unwilling and gloomy as the task seemed more hopeful, was set to work on the spot, gathering and sorting and cleaning the rings. And when, as he was pleased to point out, these were clearly insufficient for one so broad of back and breast as Master Egidius, they made him split up old chains and hammer the links into rings as fine as his skill could contrive. They took the smaller rings of steel and stitched them onto the breast of the jerkin. And the larger and clumsier rings they stitched on the back. And then, when still more rings were forthcoming, 
so hard was poor Sam driven. They took a pair of the farmer's breeches and stitched rings into them. And up on a shelf, in a dark nook of the smithy, the miller found the old iron frame of a helmet. And he set the cobbler to work, covering it with leather as well as he could. The work took them all the rest of that day, and all the next day, which was Twelfth Night and the Eve of the Epiphany. But festivities were neglected. Farmer Giles celebrated the occasion with more ale than usual, but the dragon mercifully slept. For the moment he had forgotten all about hunger or swords. Early on the Epiphany, they went up the hill, carrying the strange result of their handiwork. Giles was expecting them. He had now no excuses left to offer, so he put on the male jerkin and the breeches. The miller sniggered. Then Giles put on his top boots and an old pair of spurs and also the leather-covered helmet. But at the last moment, he clapped an old felt hat over the helmet and over the mail coat he threw his big gray cloak. Dun, dun, dun. We, 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 we,